0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at BellFlight.com. Congress continues defense budget deliberations as it also works to raise the debt ceiling and struggles to pass a bipartisan infrastructure measure. President Biden spoke to the United Nations General Assembly and also hosted British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as well as Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, to discuss the recent strategic partnership among the three nations to equip Canberra with nuclear attack submarines, as well as increase strategic defense cooperation. Biden also hosted an in-person meeting of the Quad, uh, the United States, Australia, India, and Japan. Biden and French President Emmanuel Macron spoke by phone, agreeing to do a better job of strategic dialogue in the future as European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen made the case for more European defense spending to improve the union's capabilities and strategic autonomy and the Air Force Association concluded its biggest annual meeting in person where U.S. Air Force leaders drove home the message that unless the force changes and changes fast, it will find itself eclipsed by China. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, Dr. Patrick Cronin, who leads Asia-Pacific Studies at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, former Pentagon Europe Chief, Jim Townsend, who is now uh, affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and former Pentagon Comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim, uh, who among his many hats uh, also sits at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our weekly CAVUS Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris CAVUS and our producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep dive into naval issues. Our naval coverage is sponsored by fincantieri Marinette Marine. Michael, uh, you start us off every week, and I think it's a good idea to, to do that. Obviously, very busy uh, uh, week on the Hill. Uh, you were monitoring uh, floor activity until the wee hours, so if you're a little bleary-eyed, I think everybody understands that. Start, start us off on where we stand on reconciliation.
1: Sure. So I got to tell you, I continue to be bewildered uh, on what the Democrats are doing on, on reconciliation. And it seems like many of the Democrats are as well. Every Democratic member of Congress I spoke to this week, when I asked what's going to happen, all unanimously said, I don't know. And even Speaker Pelosi was reported as saying the other day, "We're just going to take it one day at a time." Uh, the president met with uh, leaders on the Hill for five hours on Wednesday, and yesterday, uh, Schumer, Pelosi, and Yellen uh, emerged saying that they have a framework uh, for the 3.5 trillion dollar uh, reconciliation package uh, on the on the pay force. Um, now, this is despite you know warnings from many Democrats, both inside and outside, uh, that. It's you can't you shouldn't go forward with 3.5 trillion because that's something that's never going to pass. And if she does, and, and, and surprisingly enough, uh, I've just found out that she's asked the budget committee chairman to mark up a reconciliation bill over the weekend with the intent of trying to have something to vote on next week. And if they do that, they will be breaking one of the promises they made to the moderates, uh, which was not to have the House vote on a bill that can't pass the Senate. And we all know 3.5 trillion can't pass the Senate because Manchin and Sinema made clear that they won't vote for a number that high. And I still believe that there are many Democrats in the House uh, that won't vote uh, for a number that high. Uh, So their plan right now is to ping pong the bill back and forth. So but it seems to be changing by the day. Now, the next problem that they face is that they are committed to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill on Monday. Uh, Now, during these meetings that the president had with all parties, The uh, progressives pleaded with the president to weigh in to delay uh, Monday's vote to get Pelosi to break her commitment to the moderates. The moderates, in their meeting with Biden, uh, pressed him to try and lean on the progressives to get them to vote in favor of the bipartisan bill. So here we are on Friday. It is unclear whether there will be or will not be a vote on the bipartisan bill. Uh, on on Monday.
0: And this is just a series of unforced errors, uh, like the Iron Dome uh, situation, right? I mean, I know you're conflicted on this, uh, because you uh, represent the contractor. But it's just sort of like, what are you trying to achieve with this, aside from message all the wrong things about what your support for national security is, whether
1: on agreements you've already struck, whether to allies and partners like Israel? I agree. I think that was really an unforced error. And there still remains a lot of confusion as to what really happened there. But, you know, in the end, it will work out, although the path is still unclear whether it will be done uh, on the separate bill that was passed in the House yesterday or if it will be done in the defense appropriations bill uh, in conference. Now, uh, you mentioned the CR. So the CR was voted on and did pass the House along a party line vote. But the CR does uh, is now heading over to the Senate and does include increasing the debt ceiling, which Senate Republicans said they will oppose. So it's likely the Senate will pick up that CR early next week, and it will fail, and there'll be more talks of a government shutdown. However, like I said last week, I believe the reason they picked up – they voted on the CR this early was to give them time to then strip that out of the CR and then pass another one next week that does not include the debt ceiling so that the government will stay open. But they still have to figure out what they're going to do about the debt ceiling. Uh, In in October. And what is it the Republicans in the Senate want in exchange uh, for their to give them 10 votes uh, to raise the debt ceiling? And that still remains uh, unclear. Um, Do you have an
0: inkling of what they want?
1: Well, I've I've talked to House Republican leadership and I know what they want. And I think we've talked about this before. They want an agreement on the increase in defense spending. Uh, which really shouldn't be that hard because three out of the four committees are, are are doing that. I mean, we haven't seen the Senate Defense Appropriations uh, Mark yet because they haven't marked yet, but everybody's confident that they'll raise it by twenty-five billion. And the other thing that is is that they want, and I think it's going to be problematic, is a restoration of the of the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funding uh, for abortions, and that, that's going to be uh, a tough one. And uh, give us an update on where we stand with the NDAA. Sure. So you know, we talked about a lot of things that uh, are are not going well on the Hill. It's funny. I was talking to a Democratic member of Congress the other day, and we were going through the lay of the land. And I looked at him and said, "So tell me what is going well." And he referenced NDAA. That <laughs> he felt that NDAA, uh, <laughs> what markup went very well, was very bipartisan, and is going to pass with a strong uh, bipartisan vote. So. Um, and, and I, as I mentioned last week, that it would be painful, but we would get there. So there were over 850 amendments filed to the NDAA. Uh, over 400 of them made it through the Rules Committee. Uh, many were consolidated on block packages, but there were you know, several that are worth noting that you know, were, were voted on. Uh, that There was a vote um, uh, to, to, to end the uh, GBSD program, which failed. Uh, there was a vote uh, to cut the extra $24 billion that was added for defense. Uh, That failed by a wide margin. And there was also a vote on an amendment uh, to cut defense spending by 10%. And that would not have been an across-the-board cut. That would have exempted the personnel cuts. So if that had passed, the cuts to uh, to O&M procurement and uh, R&D would have been very, very serious. But that failed uh, by a large margin uh, as well. Uh, And and there was, surprisingly, a last-minute effort by Mike Pence's new group, Advancing American Freedom, to actually lobby against uh, the NDAA. Uh, primarily because of the provisions on uh, women uh, in the draft, uh, and, and surprisingly, the email they sent out even even cited the extra twenty five billion dollars that was added to the bill, which to me is, is still very puzzling. But in the end, uh, the NDAA did pass by an overwhelming bipartisan margin of three hundred sixteen to one hundred thirteen. But it's important to know that more Democrats voted for the bill than Republicans did. 75 House Republicans voted against the bill. And it's believed that the reason that many of them did vote against the bill was because of the provision that requires women to register under selective service.
0: Very briefly, because I know that you've you've got to go. Do you think that we're going to end up with some kind of BCA again, that's going to hit defense spending. I talked to Frank Kendall uh, this week on Wednesday, uh, the Air Force, uh, new Air Force secretary, you know, and he said he certainly hoped that that was not going to be the case and that the administration was going to support um, uh, defense spending and and strong defense spending and whatever is necessary in order to rebuild America's capabilities to better uh, deter China. Do you think that we could end up in another BCA type environment?
1: I, I do, but I don't think it's going to happen this year. Um, I, I think that uh, <laughs> that there is strong support for defense spending. Now, it's interesting that you say Kendall says the administration is support strong defense spending. I think that their, their budget doesn't really reflect that, as well as the rumors we're hearing about FY23 and the cuts that are coming there, I don't think reflect that. And I think that they need to be careful before they submit their FY23 budget to Congress next year and take the messages that they're getting from Congress that Congress is supporting uh, on a bipartisan basis, uh, maintaining pace with inflation, uh, in accordance with the national defense strategy. So uh, I don't think we're there yet, uh, but I, I, I think that's something that that's, could be looming on the horizon.
0: Um, I, just uh, to um, uh, reflect what they're saying, we're looking for a strong national defense. We have to make trade-offs in order to get there, and that means retiring things that we may no longer need and may no longer be relevant. That's of course the third rail up there. Nobody wants to get rid of anything, uh, and as a consequence, there's this tendency of thinking like, "Whoa, is me! Oh my God, they're going to get rid of A10s, and <laughs> we may no longer need A10s." I'm not saying there was anything that was said about it, A10s, right. but uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to make trade-offs, and Congress doesn't want to make trade-offs. This $25 billion increase was to buy a whole bunch of a lot of it was for legacy systems uh, and existing systems or systems that even people said we no longer need. Whether it's uh, you know, F-18s or anything else.
1: Yes, but I would to? say that the, the bulk of that money was to pay for things that were on the services on requirements list, things that they asked for. Uh, number one, number two, Congress is a co-equal branch of government. So all the good ideas on defense and national security don't reside over the Pentagon. And three, uh, you know, we've seen this movie before. Uh, uh, you know, this whole focus on China is reminiscent of the pivot to Asia that we saw under the Obama administration. And I still am of the belief, and a lot of people in Congress are of the belief, that the American military needs to be able to fight anywhere, anytime. And we can't just focus on fighting one conflict. We need to be able to f- focus on fighting multiple contacts, conflicts, regardless of the size and the place where they are. Our enemies will determine where we fight next. Uh, uh, so, well, well
0: said. Almost, almost as well said as a uh, um, member of Congress.
1: <laughs> <laughs> almost. I won the primary. I just didn't win the general.
0: Uh, Michael, thanks always uh, very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. In the meantime, have a great weekend and a great week. Thank you, you too. uh, Dove, uh you know, before we go to Patrick and Jim and, and Byron, I want to uh, give you a bite as a former Pentagon controller at uh, the budgetary Apple. Uh, obviously, tensions are running high. You know, as I mentioned to Michael, uh, you know, we had a great interview with Frank Kendall uh, at AFA. Um, and one of the things that he said was, Uh, Look, you know, he hopes that we don't get back into a Budget Control Act kind of uh, situation. Just any sort of broader budgetary commentary before we dive into uh, the Pacific uh, Europe and more granularity into AFA. Go ahead.
2: Well, I certainly uh, agree with Mike that uh, a new uh, BCA is is not on the immediate horizon. Uh, the Democrats have to get their act together. There's no question that uh, the the so-called moderates and the so-called progressives still cannot agree on what it is they want out of this big bill that currently goes for three and a half trillion, but many say actually will cost more and they don't know how much money they'll get to cover it and so on. There was a little blip. It literally was a 24-hour blip in this whole uh, effort to push the CR uh, and that was uh, a, a move by the so-called squad to prevent money going to Israel for the Iron Dome, which is a defensive system, uh, which actually protected Israeli citizens and towns uh, from Hamas rocket attacks and the most recent uh, go-to between the two of them. Uh, and they basically turned around to the leadership and said, if you want us to support your proposed CR and the debt ceiling and all the rest that goes with it, uh, you have to take that money out. And uh, for 24 hours, the money was out. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the uh, speaker, evidently didn't uh, push back uh, very, very hard. Uh, And uh, ultimately, the uh, mostly Jewish, but not all Jewish congressmen, Put together a standalone bill which got support from ben uh, steny hoyer which the majority leader which got support from rosa deloro the uh, appropriations chair uh that passed by 420 to 9. Uh, this this wasn't ever going to be a problem per se the trouble is the israelis are already paranoid uh, about uh the biden administration first of all like a lot of other countries they're really worried about how the administration uh handled Afghanistan and what it says about the administration's determination to really rejoin the, uh, the world, as it were, after Trump. Uh, and of course, then they've, they've seen what happened with France and the submarine thing that I, I'm sure Patrick will discuss at greater length, as will Jim. So that's have gotten them nervous already. They're nervous about the Iranians and, and uh, some return to the uh, uh, JCPOA, the, the nuclear deal. And then all of a sudden this pops up and there's so much more talk about how the progressive left is increasingly dominating the Democratic Party, although nine nine votes, one of which was a Republican, doesn't indicate domination. But again, you're talking about a country that is really very, very paranoid about where the United States is heading vis-a-vis the Middle East. And so this was the first time something like this ever happened. Uh, It was shot down quickly. But uh, clearly, uh, it, it's a canary in the coal mine for the Israelis. And the big worry is that they would go off half cocked, figuring the United States is not going to support them anymore, and go after the Iranians, and then were dragged into a war. Uh, that is the problem. And uh, unfortunately, the, the squad and their buddies don't realize that uh, what they just did was terribly counterproductive. And I should point out to everybody, uh, you have
0: a great piece on the Hill holding back on defensive systems for Israel uh, could have uh, dangerous uh, consequences. Patrick, I want to bring you into the conversation because I realize that almost everybody on this panel today is on a very short leash. Um, Talk to us a little bit. Uh, about uh, what has been an extraordinarily busy week for the administration. Obviously, the president uh, speaking uh, at the UN. We have the uh, Australia UK US uh, deal that was unveiled, uh, bilaterals, the Quad. Where does the administration need to go next, right? I mean, I think almost universally in Asia, given uh, the Chinese reaction, I should I should give a little bit of a shout out to the Filipino foreign minister uh, who, um, in very uh, polite yet firm terms, told the Chinese to get the F out of uh, Whitsun Reef and Filipino uh, waters, right? Beijing has really been ratcheting up the pressure and the tension, which is really what's brought us here. And indeed, the administration is trying to message to everybody that, hey, this isn't like... The, the pivot that this thing has real teeth. What are you hearing from senior administration officials, given that you've been in virtually every one of the briefings from uh, the Asia-Pacific team, whether from the White House or at the Pentagon?
3: Well, Vaga, the first point would be to tie into uh, Dove's point about the Middle East, that everything is connected to everything else. And as Jim can talk about with France and Europe, um, we're trying to work on a free and open Indo-Pacific that's inclusive and uh, prosperous. And that's what the administration's trying to do. But uh, things could run afoul in other regions and and with other partners and allies, as we've seen. Um, At the National Security Council at the White House, the focus is very much on setting the vision. And the whole idea of uh, letting President Biden have a free reign discussion, not scripted discussion with the three other key maritime democracies of India, Japan and Australia was critical, even while the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, starts to expand Um, and maybe it's expanding in too many directions, but with a new space working group, now it's going to have a quadrilateral fellows um, grant for bringing 25 Australians, 25 Japanese, 25 Indian and 25 Americans into American graduate programs to deal with STEM uh, uh, and high technology. Because that goes along with things like AUKUS, that these countries, these democracies are trying to form a strategic technological base. Uh, from which to work and to compete with China in the long run, even while they're, in the case of AUKUS, trying to deliver specific submarine technology that can compete uh, in the vast Indo-Pacific in the decades ahead. Um, So setting that vision is the key thing of the Quad. It's mostly non-defense. And then they're letting the alliances uh, bilaterally and trilaterally try to deliver on specific defense goods. And what defense is doing um, is, one, the Secretary of Defense is idea that China is a pacing threat, following up with the last administration, they're they're taking this seriously. They're trying to actually internalize this and drill this down at all parts of DOD. Um, And uh, that means trying to uh, first make sure that the posture uh, that we talked about in the two plus two with Australia this past month, and we'll be talking, the United States will be talking with India uh, this fall and Japan in November um, with their own two plus two arrangements, talking about long-term posture changes To make sure that we are uh, having more forward bases uh, and access and more persistent access and presence in this region. But that means doing uh, more with allies and partners. um, And that may mean bringing on their deliberate uh, sort of asymmetric capabilities, turning the anti-access area denial uh, idea, the A2AD idea that we ascribe to China, on its head, um, and letting Taiwan and the Philippines and Vietnam and Japan. Use some of their own anti access arrangements to push back on China's uh, coercion and military buildup. So that's what's happening at the broad level at the White House and at the Pentagon. Um, But um, everybody's been focused on the submarine deal, AUKUS, and what this means for the long term. Because for the next 18 months, there will be intensive talks and discussions and negotiations over what exactly are we transferring, how will this work, um, what are the implications for this in the long term, and can The U.K. and Australia uh, and the United States decide on which submarine is actually being transferred, as well as the nuclear propulsion. Um, And uh, will there be some kind of basing and leasing arrangement with Australia well in advance of any delivery? And that seems likely right now, because Prime Minister Morrison is doubling down on this relationship. Um, So so is um, the U.K., because we're bringing the U.K. in back into the indo Pacific. Uh, Robert Kaplan in the op-ed talked about bringing the Atlantic Charter to the Pacific eight, eight decades later so that's a big overview a lot of specifics Vago, but i want others to be able to talk to
0: um and and certainly you and i uh will will circle uh, uh back on this uh and obviously uh you know I mean, one of the solutions i gave was you know give the french uh, french a task group in the region uh in in the western pacific to act as sort of a conduit because i think people forget uh, the, the the important role that france plays uh in the uh indo uh pacific um Jim, let me bring you into the into this discussion. The president talked to Emmanuel Macron. Um, uh, Anthony uh, Blinken talked to Jean-Yves uh, Le Drian, uh, who said the, the the man who said that uh, France has been stabbed in the back by America uh, and Britain and, and said that it would be hard work to rebuild uh, r- relations. Now, at the same time, you have uh, Ursula von der Leyen saying what the EU uh, leaders have always said, which is, hey, we have to build up capability um, on a European perspective Uh, Folks look at this and say, oh, my God, you know, that's undermining NATO. I don't think so. We've been calling for the Europeans to spend more money for decades to improve their capabilities. With that will come greater strategic autonomy on part of our European allies when they're acting in an EU context. Where where is the relationship going? What's the messaging? And and where are we with the French? You know, last week we discussed that this would heal. Uh, Obviously, it will because they're important powers who have their interests uh, at heart, ultimately you know, where, where are we going and what did you hear over the last week? And how should Washington be responding to the EU? Because there is this sort of tendency of uh, sort of, you know, p- pushing back on the EU, whereas actually what they're trying to do is actually congruous with our strategic interest.
4: Well, uh, Vago, thank you very much. It's been an interesting few days. I think a couple of things are, are I'm seeing happen. One is that, you uh, uh, more quickly than I thought, the telephone call particularly seems to have calmed the waters somewhat. I think there's still, uh, you know, a lot of hurt, if you will, uh, bruised uh, egos, et cetera, in Paris. And I think they're still trying to figure themselves out. But I think one thing uh, that's important is that while there was a lot of sympathy for France in terms of the, of being, the, being surprised by the U.S., uh, there's a lot of sympathy for them across Europe, um, they didn't exactly fall in line behind the French in terms of of the uh, emotion and the drama of the time. Uh, talking about being stabbed in the back. Talking about um, uh, you know there were some calls about France uh, once again um, withdrawing from the integrated military structure. But 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 there there wasn't a lot of takers for that across Europe. It's, again, sympathy, but not a lot of a lot of takers. So. I think things are getting a little bit back to normal and instead focusing on one thing that was in the readout of the phone call, which was the US support um, for the idea of a stronger European defense. Uh, it didn't say strategic autonomy, it didn't say some of the other catchwords, but I think there's an understanding, at least in Paris, that this means that the US is going to be more vocal uh certainly more vocal and more active in terms of trying to build this uh whether it's a european pillar at nato or this uh, european military capability that that kind of underpins a strategic autonomy you know that's yet to be defined but i think there is an understanding that the u.s is going to be making now much more of an effort than we've been doing in the past um the white house has been reaching out to some of the clan here in washington to, to, to asking for ideas on what this looks like. And and I will tell you as, as Dove and others on the line can tell you that um, changes to U.S. export policy to the ITAR, uh, third country transfer rules, those are the things that make it hard for us to partner and cooperate a lot with European defense industry, as well as um, uh, European defense industry and the EDA's own rules about third country participation in their, um, in their program. So there is a lot of obstacles on both sides that hold us back from the kind of of uh, progress in terms of cooperation on the defense side that i think paris is expecting to come from what biden said in the phone call so we're in a weird place right now where we got we got to figure out so what did they say and what does this mean and can we really get there from here so there's going to be a lot of talk uh, ahead and i would just ask your listeners particularly those in the defense industry Watch this space, because there are certainly some expectations in Paris um, and not a lot of good ideas in Washington on how to meet those expectations. So let's let's see what happens.
0: Um, Dove, I want to bring you uh, in, in, in back, back into this discussion on this uh, field. What, what's what's the next steps the administration has to take, not just uh, in in uh, the Pacific, right? I mean, I think one of the things lost in this is the United States is going to forward base and it appears that it's going to forward base uh, some maybe nuclear attack submarines. The British have talked about doing that as well. Uh, so everybody looks at the new construction as opposed to actually uh, U.S. submarine presence is going to increase and, and allied submarine presence increases in the region. Um, something uh, that also will help it You know, uh, help train up a cadre uh, of Australians to be able um, to, uh, you know, get on the very difficult path of building up nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear operations and nuclear war, uh, nuclear submarine driving skills. But what are some of the other confidence building things? You know, I think Jim is on the mark that we have a tendency in the United States of being of, of self limiting our ability to work with people. What are some of the confidence building? Um, US, EU things that can actually happen. You know, I, I asked this question uh, when I was at uh, AFA last week. I got a, a great answer um, in an interview we're going to be running next week with General Cobra Harigian, the United States Air Force's uh, Europe uh, commander, uh, you know, where we talked about, hey, we can work around air power, we can work around space, we can work around air and missile defense. From your standpoint, specifically, what has to happen next? Transatlantically, what happens uh, next? Um, you know, not just with France, but more more broadly, given how important Europe uh, is is going to be. Patrick, I, I was writing about this twenty years ago. I, I appreciate Kaplan's great piece. I was saying twenty years ago, if there's a dust up in Asia, Europeans are going to be surprised. Article Five may be triggered again, and you're going to find yourself facing China. Be very careful what weaponry you sell uh, to the Chinese that could come flying back at you. Go ahead, Dove.
2: Well, uh, there are a couple of things we could do. I mean, obviously, one is the White House could get onto uh, very hard onto the State Department and say, look, you've really got to loosen up your arms export uh, regulations, uh, as Jim just said. I mean, this is one of the biggest headaches that the Europeans have. I'll tell you another one. EU has never been really well understood in the Defense Department. And one thing that we could do uh, is have high level talks between the secretary and his counterpart in the EU, or his counterparts, because there's more than one in that case. We don't do that. We don't talk to the EU. The EU is considered by DOD to be, well, that's commerce, that's state, that's not us. But if you really wanna get somewhere, uh, both to achieve america's objective and europe's objective as you said that really europe needs to build up in the defense world and not just build up but not duplicate itself as it far too often does then one way to do it is to have more serious coordination between Dod and 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 the eu defense uh, part of and the, the defense part of the eu i should say there are other things too we might consider the french are you know they are always been furious about not being part of the Five Eyes, and they're not going to be part of the Five Eyes. And of course, the 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 deal that just happened, the submarine deal, is with three of the Five Eyes, um, and it's a great deal from my perspective because the Chinese attacked it so much. But we have to remember this is going to take a long time. Uh, the Australians are going to need a lot of training. They had our help with the Collins class uh, far more than most people realize, and it not only will take years to build the stuff it's going to take a long time to get the australians up to speed but that gives us an opportunity to really work something out with the french so one idea that i am going to be writing about and i don't mind if others steal it is how about the french being invited into the five eyes and not the five eyes excuse me the quad Um, the brits really want to join the quad why don't bring why not bring them both in that'll drive the chinese nuts actually but it would also show the French that we do take them seriously in the region. Not everybody's gonna agree with that. I spoke to one retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs who said, nah, we can't do that. We can't bring the French in. Uh, but- Why not? Some- Why not? Well, that's exactly right. Because- 2 million, million like French the- live in, 2 million French live in Asia. They live in, they live in the Pacific. Uh, they, they run from Djibouti all the way to French Polynesia. France is part of the Pacific. And it makes an awful lot of sense. They also have a great relationship with the with the Indians and might be able to push the Indians more in the defense direction, not just in a high tech cooperation uh, than we could. So uh, that's just a suggestion. I wonder what Patrick thinks about it. Um, But if he agrees, you know, we should both write about it. (laughs) Patrick, what's your sense on that?
3: Well, personally, I think it's a great idea. As a policy level, um, they may want to try to figure out uh, how to just keep building on things like the French-Indian-Australian corporation, although that's been scuttled in part by the subdeal for the moment. But it was very promising and very effective this past year. So there may be other trilateral and quadrilateral that are uh, sort of mechanisms that could be quad plus, and then eventually they join the quad. So whatever the timing is, I'm less worried about that than getting the kind of practical cooperation with the French that Dove is talking about. So I'm open to it, certainly. Um, they've got a lot of pieces moving right now. And what's driving this so fast, of course, is China, 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 China. That's why India, the, the U.S.-India relationship, the Australia-India relationship, the Japan-India relationship, um, fr- France and India, it's incredible what the Indians are doing uh, that they weren't doing a few years ago. Um, and you can talk about this um, with respect to taiwan contingencies as well um you know bring these countries together and think through hey what are the implications of a world in which uh, china has taken by force uh, taiwan how does that change your calculations or let's take a look at what china's doing on its strategic weapon systems uh and and think through the nuclear posture review implications for all of our friends and allies from europe to asia um because it's changing fast our, our old assumptions so we need the french as well as the rest of the Indo Pacific partners and allies to be part of one uh, like minded discussion.
0: I couldn't agree uh, more. Uh, with that. Unfortunately, we, we lost Jim because the next person I was going to go to is say, hey, Jim, uh, what are some classical uh, con- concerns with that? Uh, briefly, Dove, I know you've got to jump off in about a minute. You know, you were part of an administration where freedom fries uh, became an issue. There was a lot of discord over uh, the Iraq uh, invasion, and France became a four-letter word to the point where uh, Don Rumsfeld kept insisting that uh, Dick Myers take his legion d'honneur off of his uh, ribbons. Uh, and Dick would tell me on a regular basis, uh, that's one of the ribbons I'm most proud of, and I'm not taking it off my uh, chest, um, as anybody who's had that extraordinary honor uh, would be proud of it. Um, ultimately, how do we change that dialogue? I mean, the concern for Francophiles in Washington was that the response to this would actually make it harder uh, and more complicated to engage in a more positive future, because it's it's seen as sort of a by some a petulant overreaction, right? I mean, an, ambassadors being withdrawn uh, from Canberra and Washington, although they're returning. Um, ultimately, um, you know, how, how do we need to do this to overcome any, again, neuralgia that, that comes with the United States participating more closely with France, uh, an idea that fundamentally changed over the last two decades of, of war in Afghanistan, uh, in the Middle East uh, and in Africa, where the partnership has been intimate.
2: Well, uh, you know, as I said earlier, and as Patrick said, uh, there are ways to uh, certainly calm the waters, but we have to remember something. We had this major spat with the French uh, over Iraq, and of course, Rumsfeld couldn't stand them. Uh, but we continued to work closely with them in Afghanistan. I know because I was the DoD rep for anything that wasn't military, and we'd worked with them militarily and uh, in the civilian sector. So that continued. They never left NATO, like De Gaulle pulled out of NATO in 66. Uh, they have senior commands in NATO. De Gaulle didn't pull out of NATO, but he pulled out of the military, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the military uh, uh, command. And they've, they've not uh, left uh, the integrated military command this time. Uh, they've got senior positions there. They will continue to have. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I think this will blow over. But that's not enough. And I think uh, whether it's some of the things Patrick said or or that I raised or that others have suggested, it's not enough simply to let it blow over. We really have to pull them in because they are a Pacific power. And more important, they've got nuclear submarines, as we all know, and uh, a, a nuclear, strategic nuclear capability. And the Chinese could not be less happy with that if we were to really integrate them uh, in a way that up to now we've worked together, but we haven't worked as as to the degree of integration that I think we could have. Dove, thanks very much for joining us. Really
0: appreciate it. And a word from our sponsors. Our technology coverage is sponsored by General Motors Defense and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Um, Byron, you've been very, very patient. Um, and I want to bring you into this discussion because you've been writing about this deal. Uh, you've been thinking about it. We know you were at Air Force Association last week uh, at the AFA show where we had an opportunity uh, to talk and had a had a great dinner, by the way. Shout out to anybody in the Washington, D.C. area. Go to the Yerevan Bakery um, in uh, Adams uh, Morgan. Uh, lovely little place. And they're just getting started up. Uh, the food's great. And the honey cake was fantastic. Uh, and they even had Armenian Independence Day cookies. So they, we, we Had that going for us. Talk to us a little bit about where we are with this, the strategic nature of the deal, uh, and how China was looming very, very large in virtually every conversation uh, that you and I were having um, at AFA last week.
5: Let me just start, Fogg, with a couple of thoughts. I guess the first is, you know, this the time horizon for how long it looks like this deal is actually going to produce nuclear submarines for Australia, and I was frankly, looking at some history for my week ahead note on Sunday night, you know, in 1958, the U.S. and the U.K. signed a mutual defense agreement, uh, partly prompted by the Soviet launch of Sputnik. Um, you know, the U.S. agreed to provide the, uh, the skipjack reactor, the, the S-5W <coughs> for a U.K. attack submarine program, um, and that was after you know we we had launched our first uh, nuclear submarine the Nautilus in 1954 but the the dreadnought which was the uk attack boat was laid down in 1959 and it was commissioned in 1963 so it just still you know this is kind of the segue into the afa conversation which is you know i just don't quite understand the time frames that people are talking about here when well, we worked on much shorter time frames, in a period that was, uh, you know, quite fraught with, uh, with, with peril at, at a strategic level. So that's kind of one of my takeaways and segues. You know, as much as we talk about this, it is an important agreement. But boy, you know, if you're talking about getting an you know, Australian capability uh, in the water, you know, ten or twelve years from now, it's just it's it's a very long time frame. Um, and I, I think that has to be part of this discussion. How do you pull that forward? How do you accelerate it?
0: Um, well, you know, one of the t- challenges uh, where, um, you know, one, one of the things I think that Frank tried to address, he tried to do it not in as a confrontational manner, right? You and I were at uh, the Navy League show where the chief of naval operations sort of gave a demarche or a little bit of a spanking to the the defense industry. I think Frank knows the community enough to know it's better not to antagonize it ultimately in terms of the the political weight that it carries, uh, given the industrial footprint in the United States. But what are some of the things that have to happen, um to get the kind of agility that the chief and the secretary are looking at, right? I mean, they're looking at urgency, they're looking at moving away uh, the relevant, irrelevant uh, discussion, right? Let's not call it legacy because I don't think that's that's true. There are a lot of legacy systems that may be actually very relevant to what we're doing, just like the, there may be futuristic systems that may be not as relevant, right? I mean, more science uh, project uh, oriented, right? I think, Frank, uh, Secretary Kendall at one point made that clear, right? there are a lot of science projects. It's not abundantly clear which one of these delivers capability. If it delivers capability, then do it. I, what are what are the alignment things that have to happen? Because major contractors have a responsibility to make money for their shareholders. And that may mean using their political muscle to force the customer or compel the customer or nudge the customer or, or work through political channels for them to buy more F-18s or more any other extent system, even if some analysts may say they're not relevant. Right. I mean, how do we need to do this to move this needle uh, while addressing the industrial element of this, where these companies exist to make money and and they're they're going to make money? Yeah. Right?
5: And I, I would agree. I mean, I thought, you know, both the secretary and the chief <clears throat> um talked about, you know, really this need for speed that we've got to act now and i thought it was interesting you know typically at this time of year <clears throat> at these conferences you'd hear senior dod leadership railing uh, against congress for not passing a budget in time and you know we're going to have to operate under a cr and that's going to create uncertainties and inefficiencies can we just please have our budget instead <clears throat> you know what both the secretary and the chief talked about was guys you you've got to stop funding these programs that we say we don't want um, and I, I thought, you know, that was a message that was loud and clear. It also came out when General Mark Kelly, the commander of air combat command spoke about the fighter roadmap. I mean, he was pretty blunt about, uh, you know, I'll read some of the quotes I have, you know, good enough today will fail tomorrow. Um, you know, the air force has done extensive analysis that unambiguously shows the current flight fighter fleet will not succeed. He made another comment that, more than 218 A-10s will drive the fighter roadmap off the road. So it was a very, very kind of hard pushback against these these addbacks that that Congress has made. And yeah, they're capable aircraft. You know, you're not adding <clears throat> Brewster Buffaloes and Douglas T.B.D. Devastators <clears throat> or the you know the, the 2000 and. Uh, 21 equivalents of those airplanes, uh, you know, they were, they were obsolete when the U.S. went to war in 1941. But, you know, in, in the environment that you're looking at in the Western Pacific, some of these aircraft are not going to be that relevant. And it gets back to this question of resource allocation. So I don't know how you do it other than you just browbeat people. I personally think you probably need to make more, you know, you're you're going to have to find a way to make some of these development programs uh, where the, the returns might be higher and possibly where sustainment is, is a less attractive business um, because I frankly believe you know industry is going to put money where they see the highest return. And right now, if you look at where some of the margins are on things like spare parts, it's by far one of those highest margin highest return parts of the defense sector. If you change that and you change incentives, maybe you'll get a different behavior out of out of industry because believe me, I don't think Congress is acting alone when they, they you know elect to put these systems back into the budget that DOD wants to invest.
0: But Byron, from uh, just uh, very quickly, and I, uh, Patrick, I'm going to come back to you in in just uh, in just a moment too, uh, as we as we wrap up. But Byron, um, obviously, uh, budget deliberations uh, going on. You know, we started the show with Michael, sort of giving us a, a tour of where we are. We heard from uh, Dove. You track the budget as closely as anybody uh, does. Um, how do you think this is going to break? And do we end up with less money for defense? whether anybody likes it or not, or whether, right, I mean, because Congress is telling the department, hey, don't worry about making hard choices. We've got your back. That that works until you run out of money, right, or or have some automatic uh, debt reduction mechanism that, that triggers. Do, do you think ultimately we end up with something like the BCA, especially given, you know, people look at what the national debt is, they're also not paying attention to the trillions of dollars um, that the Fed has been expending in this, process as well right so I mean, the number is actually a lot bigger than people think it is and they also the fed may have also acquired a lot of really bad assets in in the course of this right i mean so where's your head on where we're going on this i mean i
5: think Uh, i think of look to michael's point and i would agree with him i don't think you're going to get a a, another bca type deal there's just not enough time uh in the the balance of this year to really craft something like that. And I don't think there's going to be the appetite for it. I mean, I think one of the bright spots and and Michael mentioned it was, you know, the NDA looked like it went through fairly smoothly. And you could argue, you know, if there are fears that that Congress is going to make big cuts to defense spending, you know, those all got beaten back. So I think you're still talking about, you know, how big is the plus sign uh, on the budget now. What's interesting, though, is if we do spill into, um, you know, CRs, you know, industry can live with that. Um, the, the debt ceiling is is a really, you know, you're playing with fire. You're, you're frankly juggling, you know, the equivalent of, of uh, nuclear weapons as far as financial markets are concerned. You know, any thought of the U.S. defaulting uh, or not honoring its obligations um, <clears throat> will have a ripple-through effect that you know the market so far is obviously watching this or markets are but it's it's not it it's just a very unpleasant uh way to do business and of course there's always a fear you know that you're going to detonate one of these things someday and you will see the spike in interest rates <clears throat> that will come with um with with a very different view of the credit worthiness of u.s debt so um i i think we could see something if you play a Extended CR scenario into 2022, you know, and, and Washington still hasn't produced a budget. Then you, you kind of have to patch together something to get this over the over the, the goal line. I also think that the um, it, it it's I don't see a scenario where DoD would get the additional 25 billion dollars and Democrats come up empty empty-handed. With nothing for infrastructure or the uh, the Build Back America plans, uh, I, I I still think the two are linked. And as much as you know, maybe some some people in the political spectrum don't like the non-defense discretionary increases, or would only like to see defense increased. You know, that's the way it's worked in Washington D.C. Even even in the Budget Control Act, where you lift, lifted the caps on the Budget Control Act it was a trade-off between defense and non-defense. So um, the the $25 billion increase could go poof if if these other two major efforts fail, or uh, I think they could, you know, they'll probably be scaled back to some degree, but um, don't count on getting an increase in defense spending if there's no increase in non-defense spending. Um,
0: I I should point out, right, we got to the BCA um, when at the time, uh, the Republic of the Freedom Caucus was saying, hey, we're just not going to go for a debt increase, and let's cleanse the nation by fiscal fire. It was uh, the capital markets beginning to move, uh, US debt downgraded for the first time ever, uh, markets getting very, very jittery, right? And the biggest problem with that is that once once the market makers begin to see that they might make more money from a default then the market moves in a very unpredictable and very dangerous ways, right? I mean, ultimately, the, the job of the financial industry is to make money, even, you know, even in a calamity situation. Uh, and then once they bet in it, right, you get into a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately. So how long do we have to talk this irresponsibly, you think, before the market? The market already started to move last week, right? I mean, we had a couple of down well, there, days there were, in There
5: have some views, you know, Bill Hoagland, who who is certainly he Senate Appropriations Committee background, you know, knows this stuff inside and out. He thought it was feasible for uh, the Democrats to pull together a reconciliation package over the next two to three weeks that could just, you know, raise the debt ceiling. The problem is that just eats the calendar up. I think that's part of, of McConnell's strategy here. Um, you know, and as I said, it still has to have the blessing of the Senate parliamentarian. That's always a question mark. You know, I, I keep thinking of, um, <laughs> I'm going to date myself a little bit, but anybody can can watch the movie Rebel Without a Cause, where there's a game of chicken and these two guys are driving cars to the end of a cliff. And, you know, the idea is you're supposed to bail out of your car before it goes over the cliff. Well, of course, one of them gets his his uh, shirt sleeve stuck in the door handle and goes over the cliff with it. So, so that's the risk here that, that, you know it falls apart you know there, there really will be that you just don't want to go there you you will crash if you uh, if you don't raise a debt ceiling and and I think um, I, I think that's probably where the market looks at this is hey this is just unpalatable you guys have got to have more sense than to uh, you know go over the cliff in the car
0: um, Well I mean the unfortunate uh, evolution of American politics is as as we saw in um, you know in 2008 right? Um, But we we can't help Barack Obama fix the economy because then we won't win in 12. But if we keep the economy bad, we can win in 12. I believe that some of those calculus are going down, right? You have a gangbuster economy that may not help Republicans in 22. Uh, You know, anything you can do to damage the economy. Is seen by some as um, a legitimate way of 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 being able to help return. Uh,
5: I would agree with that, and every time I hear that thinking, I I think the comment that that's a really bad leak on your side of the boat. I, I couldn't agree with you more, right? And I, I'm not
0: I'm not trying to be unnecessarily critical. I'm just being observational. Yep. You know, observing that this, unfortunately, that that is another dynamic in this uh in this uh in this calculation right republicans didn't have much of a problem with added uh spending uh as long as as their president was doing it right i mean we discussed this months yeah. before the election that this would become that you know all of a sudden debt would become an issue when there's you know if there was a democrat sitting in the white house patrick yeah. let me uh, b- bring bring this around on you um let's uh, i want to quickly get your take uh and because we've got about a minute and a half or so left on uh, what's happening in Beijing and how Beijing is responding to all of this. uh, Because I think that, you know, aside from a lot of furious statements and and some acting out, Mm. there has to be reconsideration on the part of Beijing, uh, given that it had a pretty successful strategy and folks were not standing up to it. And now all of a sudden, everybody everywhere is standing up to it. And there's an administration uh, in Washington that is actually doing all of the things that you were talking about doing uh, for very many years, right? Bringing everybody together and actually erecting a unified response. This is particularly important. I, I think people can't forget, right, this was needle moving in Australia with an economy that's dependent on China, but got so banged around by China that they're willing to take this, this kind of a, a major step. I think other economic uh, steps will be needed. Uh, so that allies and partners come to the aid of nations that China is punishing and buy Australian wine and Australian beef and what have you. Uh, but but walk us through that response and also Suga's uh, decision to step down and how that potentially changes the, the Japanese uh, dynamic.
3: Well, a funny thing happened on the way to uh, the China dream. Um, uh, allies and partners got together and unified and signified that they could work together across a broad range of issues, both that shift the balance of power, uh, the balance of military power, and technological competition for the long term. So we have to separate the Chinese uh, heated rhetoric, uh, which uh, follows predictable lines, like this is all about the encirclement of China, um, to um, uh, and, and this is irresponsible and threatening, um, to the fact that the Chinese uh, over Taiwan's application to join the uh, Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the multilateral trade agreement, um, China then uh, flew uh, almost 20 aircraft in, into Taiwan's airspace um, you know, as a response of the, tr- of the trade application. Um, but that's exactly where China has been tone deaf for too long. And one assumes <clears throat> that in the coming months, China's going to have to recalibrate. They've done this historically. They've usually recalibrated. But what we don't know is how much she really needs to keep on the same hardline tack, both internally and externally, as he heads toward uh, the party Congress in 2022, which is supposed to coronate, you know, give him the coronation of a third term as general secretary of the party. So that's the unknown here. And Japan? I'm sorry. Prime Minister Suga's uh, swan song was excellent in terms of um, he's he's followed through on his uh, his his old mentor uh, Shinzo Abe's agenda. Uh, And I assume that in the new leadership that's coming uh, next month, um, we're going to see a Japan that follows uh, this course and doubles down even further. There's going to be an early opportunity, for instance, on the defense and foreign policy level to have a two plus two in Japan here in in the fall. Um, But I expect uh, Japan to be not just the cornerstone of uh, peace and security uh, through the U.S.-Japan alliance, but Japan to continue to be more active in working with India, Australia, Europe, UK, and many others as well.
0: And uh, who is the, and who's the new prime minister? The new prime minister is not decided. The 29th
3: is the first ballot vote among LDP rank and file. If nobody gets 50%, it goes to a smaller group uh, of provincial uh, sort of you know, delegates, um, and there it's less predictable. So Toro Kono has been uh, the front runner, but uh, watch out for the dark horse Takaichi, the woman who is uh, quite the hardliner wants to double Japanese defense spending, big on uh, nuclear power, um, and uh, strong in the alliance. But I think she could become a a challenge for uh, how Japan's viewed in the region, and that, that could be a problem for the United States.
0: Uh, in, in, in indeed, right? Because uh, generally, uh, the folks that have those attributes unfortunately have a tendency of setting off all of uh the allies and partners that felt the sting of Japan during World War II. It's unfortunate, but I mean, it's still um, it's, uh, um and and China will take advantage uh, of those uh, memories uh, and, exactly. uh, and perceptions uh, to to aggravate trying to play the old
3: uh, history card here.
0: Indeed. Gentlemen, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend, uh, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot.
5: Thanks, Fargo.
0: Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next-generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.